As book lovers, we all know the potential a single book has to make a massive impact in a person's life. The conversation you'll hear on this episode of SSR is possibly the most unique example of this phenomenon that I've ever heard. I'll leave it to my guest to share all the details of the impact Lurleen McDaniel's Don't Die My Love has had on her life and career. But trust me, you don't want to miss this story. Don't Die My Love is one of the 70-plus YA books written by Lurleen McDaniel, who made a name for herself telling stories of teens facing intense, tragic, often life-threatening situations. It was published in 1995, became a national bestseller, and is, to this day, one of this prolific author's most beloved novels. In it, we meet high school juniors Julie and Luke. As the daughter of the football coach, Julie is practically royalty in their small Midwestern town, where football is pretty much everything. Luke is her dreamy boyfriend, who also happens to be the star of the team. He is so romantic that he asked her to marry him all the way back when they were in elementary school. The rest of their seemingly perfect relationship is history. Things change, though, when Luke can't shake the symptoms of what he thinks must be a pesky virus. After Julie pushes him to see a doctor, Luke receives a jarring cancer diagnosis, and we spend the rest of the book following these two teens through the ups and downs of a difficult medical journey that no one should have to take, regardless of their age. On today's episode, my guests and I discuss the ways in which Lurleen McDaniel empowered kids to better understand and cope with crisis situations like the one Luke and Julie find themselves in. We also find ourselves empathizing hard with the parents in Don't Die My Love and wishing that Julie could approach things just a little differently. My guest today is Hitha Palapu, an investor and the author of How to Pack, Travel Smart for Any Trip. She shares five smart reads every weekday on Instagram, as well as book reviews and honest answers to your questions. Follow along with Hitha on Instagram at HithaPalapu. Hitha also recently launched a podcast of her own, which you should definitely check out. It's called One Smart Thing. She wears so many hats, and I am so thankful to her for being my guest on this episode. I am also so thankful for the SSR social media community. I go back and forth sometimes with my feelings about social media, but the conversations I'm having with all of you in these spaces about books and life always convince me that there can be more positive than negative on the internet. Life is especially funky and difficult these days. For context, I'm recording this in the thick of coronavirus social distancing and self-quarantining, and it's helpful knowing that we can all stay connected no matter where we are. Follow along on Instagram and Twitter at SSRPod and on Facebook by searching The SSR Podcast. I always appreciate seeing you tag the episodes you're listening to on Instagram stories. If you want to get in on this, take a screenshot of this episode wherever you're listening to it, yes, right now, then post it to your story, tagging SSRPod. I'd also love if you would consider leaving a five-star rating or review for SSR on iTunes. I have such big plans for the podcast, and those ratings and reviews help new audiences find the show, making those plans that much easier to put into action. The more ratings and reviews SSR has, the easier it will be to invite awesome guests and to make the SSR experience even better for you. Thanks to everyone who's left a rating or review so far. You can also take your support one step further by becoming a Patreon sponsor. Every month, patrons contribute a few dollars to the podcast in exchange for exclusive rewards like newsletters, bonus episodes, SSR merch, and more. You can contribute as little as $1 per month, and as part of the Patreon community, you can take pride in knowing that you're helping to keep this independent podcast going strong. Get all the details at www.patreon.com ssrpodcast or by visiting www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. Shout out to all of the patrons tuning in now. If you love the SSR merch, 
bookmarks, stickers, tote bags, and t-shirts, but aren't ready to commit to being a Patreon sponsor right now to get it, no worries. Check out www.ssrpodcast.com shop to order your swag and support the show in the process. Now more than ever, we need to come together to support independent bookstores. With so many brick-and-mortar businesses closed because of coronavirus, they need our love and support from afar, which means that Libro FM has suddenly become even more fantastic than it was before, which was already pretty fantastic. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. Choose from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know who I'm talking about. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Personally, I love supporting my local independent bookstore, Books Are Magic, when I shop audiobooks on Libro.fm. But you can choose any store you want. Use code SHOPBOOKSTOREsNOW to get two audiobooks for the price of one and give your local bookstore 100% of the purchase price. Thanks to Libro FM, we all have the power to make a big difference for independent bookstores in this difficult time. Now, let's go to the show. Hi, Hitha. Welcome to SSR. Hi. Thanks for having me. It's Lurleen McDaniel Day, listeners. I know. These books, like, defined my adolescence in, like, a very strange way, and it ended up me working with my father in life-saving drugs. So it's it's eerie to, like, revisit this whole, the books that I think got me to where I am today. Well, if you're open to it, I'd love if we could take a deeper dive into that because... Sure. I did not read Lurleen McDaniel as a kid. I think I maybe missed it a little bit. This book that we're talking about, Don't Die My Love, came out in 1995, which was, I think, like the height of Lurleen mania. And I was a little on the young side for it at that time. But I remember seeing the books on the shelves at my school library and being like, oh, like those are grown-up books. Like these look so <laughs> scandalous, which they're not. And then um, when I was working in children's publishing right out of college, I happened to work for the imprint that publishes Lurleen. And um, my cubicle mates and I, at one point, we were working on some like indexing project where we happened to have like all of the Lurleen titles up on screen. And the titles are so dramatic. So my main like association with Lurleen McDaniel is just spending hours of my workday sort of giggling over the titles of her books. But I know that she is not to be taken lightly. And I would love to hear more about your personal history with her. I don't even remember the first time I picked up this book. And Don't Die My Love was my first Lurleen. And I remember just picking it up and being so captivated by, yes, a teenage love story, but also what cancer looked like in a very personal and real way. And what's interesting is that 
at the time I had had my, my mother's godmother pass away from breast cancer. She passed away when I was maybe nine. So I had seen the deterioration. I had heard about my mom taking her to chemo, but I never really understood it. Similarly, my father's best friend, my godfather passed away from leukemia when I was in the midst of Luralene mania. And it put into context for me what he had actually kind of gone through in a way I could understand. Because how do you actually explain chemotherapy, radiation, that it's not often the cancer drugs or the cancer that kills you, but like a rogue infection that hits you when you're immunocompromised. And at the time, my dad was also working on a lot of cancer drugs at major pharmaceutical companies. So he'd come home and talk about like what he was working on and what the targets were. And it really planted not just a seed, but like an entire garden in my brain that followed me through middle school and high school and in my early career. And when my father finally went out on his own and had built, you know, a growing company, needed someone to sort of just jump in and do whatever. I was itching for the opportunity and got to jump in and help him develop improved versions of a lot of common chemotherapeutic agents and hospital drugs for urgent care, critical care. And I guess 10 years later from that day or 11 years later, we're still here developing drugs together. And it's wild that a book I picked up at my school library kind of triggered this whole journey. It is, and and it's interesting. I I don't know a lot about the specifics of cancer care, either in 1995 or now, but I was reading that Lurleen McDaniel did do a lot of research in writing all of her books, which do sort of fall into this genre of like tragic romance for teens. I was reading that she she did a lot of research. She spoke with a lot of doctors. She went to hospice care and spoke with hospice doctors for a lot of these more tragic storylines. Um, And so I do get the sense that she was trying to really be on the cutting edge of the medical technology that was going on at the time in which she was writing. And I I would assume that a lot of what's in this book is now outdated, but I do give her a lot of credit for trying to offer readers a peek into what was going on. And as you said, for a kid who is perhaps experiencing loss and tragedy from any vantage point and maybe not quite understanding like what's going on when your loved one goes into the hospital or maybe not quite understanding the conversations that your parents are having about their care, I would think that this book might sort of give you a sense of peace that like you would understand it a little bit more. Mm -hmm. I mean, two things there. Actually, a lot of what she writes is actually the case still. First line, like the chemotherapy or cancer treatment. So what you get immediately upon diagnosis hasn't fundamentally changed. The newer drugs are often given after those have kind of failed and you have to move on to more specialized or targeted therapy, generally speaking. The second thing is, is absolutely true. I, having read a lot of her books and read how she wrote people in their last days before finally succumbing to the disease, how weakened they were, how they looked like a shell and almost a skeleton of themselves. I kind of was prepared in a very real way when we went to see Uncle Thomas for the very last time in the hospital. And it didn't shock me the way I think it would have had I not read her book. So I'm grateful that, you know, she gave me an opportunity to be prepared and to be able to say goodbye 
without those feelings of shock uh, or being scared or fearful of, you know, seeing this incredibly strong bear of a person that had been there my whole life kind of in a, in a really vulnerable, you know, weakened state. Well, as much as I hate to hear about the fact that you had to have that experience and, and as much as I hate knowing that so many of us have had to go through that experience at all ages, it does give me sort of a glimmer of hope that books, all kinds of books, but of course, in this case, specifically Lurleen McDaniel offer some sort of comfort. And even as an almost 30-year-old woman, I would say that reading this book offered some clarity for me in terms of cancer treatment and what's really going on. Because I think sometimes, even as grown-ups, we're afraid to ask questions. Mm-hmm. You know that people you care about have cancer, but unless you're kind of like their primary caregiver, the person taking them day in and day out to the hospital, it's hard to get a clear picture of what's actually going on and what they're experiencing. And so even if a little bit of this book is true, I feel like I've learned something as an adult about what mm-hmm. people actually experience. Um, and so shout out to Lurleen Daniel for giving us some really good information in addition to some really important empathy. Absolutely. And I feel like she's a very ahead of her time because, you know, spoiler alert, uh, two books that I've read recently that really kind of triggered this Lurleen renaissance in my brain, uh, My Oxford Year by Julia Whelan and In Five Years by Rebecca Searle, do talk about these from more of an adult perspective. And I have to say, shout out to Lurleen for preparing me for at least that cancer parts of those books, which are predominant storylines, and let me enjoy the language and the prose and the story independent of that in a way that I don't think I would have been able to separate the two as well. Hmm. Well, I wanted to share a little bit of Lurleen McDaniel history, if you're up for it. Yes. A little bit of how she became the Lurleen McDaniel that we all know. There's not that much about her on the internet, which I thought was interesting. I was expecting like tons and tons of think pieces from like millennial book lovers and millennial journalists talking about the impact that her books had on them. I didn't find that, but I did find one really great article in the Washington Post that I'll, of course, link in the show notes. Um, and it talks about how Lurleen became an author She actually met somebody in the waiting room at a hospital whose father ran a publishing company, and this person told her that they were looking for board book authors, and she decided that she would give it a try. She, like, had some time, so she wrote a few board books, she wrote a few picture books, and then she got bored, and so she asked the publishing company if there was a possibility that she could write for older children, and she had learned in her research that fifth-grade girls are the best customers at school book fairs, which is probably true still to this day. (laughs) And um, she got the okay from the publishing company to try to shoot a little bit older with her next book, and her first novel was called Will I Ever Dance Again? Um, And it's about a 13-year-old girl who finds out that she has diabetes, and if we do a little bit of a rewind back to that moment when she was in the hospital waiting room and met this daughter or this son of a publisher. Um, She was there because her son, Sean, had also been diagnosed with diabetes. So she was inspired to enter the genre of writing about tweens and teens who are in these really critical traumatic situations by her own son's disease and illness and sort of everything that followed from that. So the first book that she wrote was about um, a teenager with diabetes, but of course she went on to write about all kinds of other things. And in this book, as we know, it's about cancer. I I just love that story. I haven't read that 
sort of like fitting of a story of an author in a long time. It just all kinds of seems like it was meant to be. And I found a quote from her where she talks about how she really feels like the hand of God was on that journey. And there's definitely a dose of Christianity in her books, which mm-hmm. um, I was like definitely aware of. And I was sort of marking off as I was going through. And I also read in my research that she she would study the Bible before she wrote any um, any one of her books because she wanted to be able to complement the medicine and the technology with the human element. Um, and she didn't want her books to feel too cold. So in order to do that, she turned to her Bible. There's more fun facts. I had no idea about any of those. And I honestly am surprised that there hasn't been a BuzzFeed like listicle and nostalgia essay on on her books. But maybe you or I should write it. (laughs) It's never too late. We could do it now. Um, And I found a YouTube video that, again, I'll link in the show notes where it's pretty old. I think it's maybe from the early aughts. And it's like a phone in reader, like asking why she thought Don't Die My Love was so beloved, because I think it's her bestseller. And she's like, I don't really know. (laughs) She's like, if I knew, I would write one every day. And she talks about how she thinks it's just like at its core, a great love story. And um, the only thing that I can compare that to is A Walk to Remember, which was really like my equivalent. (sighs) That came out when I was about like, I don't know, 10 or 11. And I think I had a similar relationship with A Walk to Remember that maybe kids who grew up in the thick of Lurleen had to her books, where again, like it's this really sad story, but and I don't know what this says about me, but what I remember most about that is the love story. And, and I think maybe that was a little bit of what Lurleen was trying to get to in that YouTube interview. I loved A Walk to Remember, both the book and the movie. And it put me on a massive Nicholas Sparks-like path. And I remember watching um, the last song with Miley Cyrus uh. and Liam Hensworth on an airplane, like on my way to a business trip and sobbing. This is like back in the day where it was the communal TVs. It wasn't the individual TVs in the seat back. You had to watch what everyone else was watching. What an interesting (laughs) choice for an airline to do a Nicholas Sparks. I kind of like that. Yeah. United. Um, that was a Denver to Vancouver flight. It was a bizarre (laughs) choice. And that poor flight attendant was literally bringing me like a box of tissues from the galley because I was (laughs) hysterical and I don't, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. As I was going through this book, I kept like marking off points where I was like, is this just going to be like a walk to remember? It it ended up being a lot different, but, um, I, I definitely like felt some nostalgia about the first time I saw that movie while I was reading this book. But let's talk a little bit about our main characters, Julie and Mm -hmm. Luke, who have like the picture perfect high school relationship at the beginning. He's the football star at this seemingly very like quintessential American high school. She's not only his beautiful girlfriend, but she is the daughter of the football coach, Bud. Of course, his name is Bud as a football (laughs) coach. And uh, she is definitely what I think you would call a daddy's girl um, in that very stereotypical way. There's a weird tension between her and her mom, and she like always sides with her dad. Largely, it seems, because her dad really likes her boyfriend. Um, Mm -hmm. And her mom, who's a school counselor, is a little bit concerned that maybe she's like too into her boyfriend. And I would like to talk more about that because I was very interested in that subplot throughout the book. But things take a little bit of a turn when Luke starts complaining of not feeling well. And Julie at one point feels his lymph nodes, which I thought was an interesting touch. And I guess like we probably couldn't have gotten to the diagnosis quickly (laughs) in any other way, but not necessarily something that like I think most high schoolers would think to do, to be like, let me just check your lymph nodes. But she does find a lump, and of course, you can only imagine um, how things 
spiral from there. How did it feel to you to like get back into your relationship with Luke and Julie? And, and did you have like nostalgia? What, how did it feel to you to come back there as an adult? It was like reconnecting with two old friends and it felt very, very comforting. Cause I mean, I read my copy until it literally fell apart, but I remember empathizing with the mother so much more this time around and going, listen to your mother, Julie. <laughs> and I mean, Julie was a, like an honor student. So of course I feel like it's logical that she would know what a lymph node is. If her mom was saying you should be applying to Northwestern and all these top colleges, you have the grades, you have the scores and whatnot. So it was great to have that comforting, nostalgic feeling rereading this as an adult, but also I guess I'm a mother now. I have two boys, a five-year-old and an almost one-year-old. And I'm like, oh, I don't know how it would feel as like any kind of mother with this girl all up in my kid's business and like she should be focused on her future and they should be focused on theirs and yes, spend time together, but also boundaries. Yeah. I actually didn't know which one of the mothers I felt more for in this book because I was frustrated with Julie's mother because she was Mm -hmm. really trying so hard to get her, as you said, apparently very smart daughter to focus on something other than her boyfriend and his potential football career. But I also, I had this gut feeling that everything going on between Julia and Luke and Luke's mother was like wildly inappropriate. Like it just seemed so strange to me that Julie was like tagging along on all of these very important doctor visits. And it seemed as though Luke's mom was receptive. She's a single mom and I'm sure she wouldn't have wanted to do those things alone. But Julie gave up holidays with her family to spend time with Luke and his mom at the hospital. And and I had this thought that when I was, a teen myself, that push-pull that we were reading about between Julie and her mom, where her mom was trying to be like, no, you need to be with your family for Christmas. This is your home. This is, these are, you know, we're your parents. Um, you shouldn't be staying in a hospital. And Julie was like totally indignant about that. Like, I wouldn't want to be anywhere else but with Luke. Um, I know that as a teen, I would have been so furious with Julie's mother that she would think that that would be okay for her, for them to be away. And as an adult, I'm like, it's super strange that you think that like your place is just sitting there with Luke and his mom. Like, it just felt so inappropriate to me. And I was reminded, as I often am reading these books for the podcast, of how much my opinion has changed, um, of course, in the 20 years since I maybe would have read this book originally. I agree. And I think it took me back to where I was when I first read that book. In that sense, this was escapist fantasy because being a South Asian kid... I was definitely not allowed to date. This would have never, ever, ever flown by my parents, ever in a million years. So reading it, I was like, oh, oh, I didn't know any better. It's nice to know that that's actually true. But I agree with you on the interesting relationship between Julie and Luke's mom. In a way, you get a very kind of sisterly vibe almost from them, like a big sister, little sister relationship, not so much a mother your son's girlfriend relationship. The lines are very blurred. And in the book, it talks about how Luke lost his dad at a very young age. She's a single mom. They live in a lower income part of the community, whereas Bud is apparently very well off as a high school football coach, which I always, now reading it, I was like, the socioeconomics of this don't make as much sense as I kind of passed over the first time around. But (laughs) You know, it is, it's interesting to also, like you and I both grew up outside of Philadelphia, football was a deal, but it wasn't 
everything the way I think it is in a lot of other towns in the United States. So it just it gave me a look at what life is like outside of my then little bubble in the Northeast. But yeah, I had a lot of mixed feelings and changed feelings on how I viewed the characters and their relationships with one another this time around. Yeah, I, I haven't seen the entire series of Friday Night Lights, so I want to preface this by, by admitting that. But there was something almost Friday Night Lights in the way that I felt that Julie's father related to Luke. It was, A, as though you know the, the football coach was a celebrity and seemingly wealthy, which as far as I know, that's not usually how that works. But also, like, he was so attached to Luke. And there was a sense early in the book, I think, that Luke was, like, the son that he never had. And so mm-hmm. there, were, there was some interesting gender stuff throughout the book that I wanted to point out, one of which was the narrator saying, she knew her dad was teasing, but still his remarks stung. She was her parents' only child and a daughter at that. She had never <sighs> doubted that her dad loved her, but Luke was clearly the son Bud Ellis had always wished he'd had. So I, I, in addition to the inappropriate relationship that I feel Julie has with Luke's mom and the contentious relationship that she has with her own mother, I sort of had my eye on the relationship between Bud and Luke throughout the book. There were some very strange moments. What was your overall impression of Julie's dad? I mean, it was so, in, it was just the antithesis of my own father and a lot of the men I had the father figures I had grown up with in my life, I don't ever, and maybe this is a product of culture or where I grew up, but I was never, ever told like certain jobs were girl jobs or felt that being a girl, I had to focus on certain things or I couldn't have a conversation on others. So that was bizarre to me then. And even more to me now, how Julie's gender defined her relationship with her father in a very stereotypical kind of 50s, 60s mentality. And it didn't upset me quite as much the first time I read it, because I think I was just so captivated by the story that I gave it a pass. But this time around, it gave me comfort that things are so different, that our family is raising our sons incredibly differently, and that I'm aware of it in a way I almost either glossed over it or chose not to pay attention to it, reading it in my adolescence. Yeah, I I pulled out another quote that um, I think really speaks to some of the gender, what I would say, issues in this book and and the toxic masculinity. Um, At one point early in Luke's cancer treatment, the coach says, Luke's no wimp. He's used to taking hard hits on the football field, so a little slice out of his neck and a sore spot on his body won't set him back much. It's so gross. He's, uh, come on, bud. Come on, bud. And then later on, Julie is talking about her dad or thinking about her dad. And she was like, Luke's supposed to be tough. He's not supposed to be some sissy who falls in love. Like, dude, you're talking about your boyfriend falling in love with you. Your dad should be thrilled about that. And that's just not the language that we would ever use today. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. I wonder... I wonder where, like, Bud and I forget um, Julie's mom's name, but I wonder where they are now. I don't know that we ever learn her mom's name. If we do, it's maybe once or twice. We definitely yeah. are, are presented with a lot more information about Bud than we are about her mother. Her mother is sort of presented as a nag more than anything. And I think even in the dynamic that we see between Bud and Julie's mom, you see a little bit of that toxic masculinity because it's very clear that, like, 
Bud is the is the leader of the family, and Julie has attached herself to him, um, and he definitely like sets the culture in the house. Um, and I think that that's probably part of why that tension between Julie and her mother runs so high throughout the book. And it's not just the leader in the family, but of the community, the sort of reverence and religiousness of football in that community rings very true in the book throughout. I mean, in a lot of high school era books, you are presented with a wider array of characters that kind of defines a high school experience, the theater kids, the debates kids, the newspaper, the athletes, that kind of spectrum. In this book, it really is Julie and Luke and their best friends and the football team and nothing else, nobody else. The classes, teachers, it's only in reference to Luke keeping up with schoolwork during his treatment or walking down the hallways, but it's never to do with, you know, for high school students, they really weren't very focused on school. Yeah, it's so funny. Every once in a while, we'll read a, a YA book for the podcast, and the joke with my guest is like, I, were they in school? I did not see any homework being done, especially for, as you mentioned, a character like Julie, who seems to be a very good student. Like, she doesn't even have any pressure about grades. Like, she's not once in the book is she like, oh, I should probably study. Um, mm-hmm. It's just sort of like, I don't know, a foregone conclusion that she's smart enough to get good grades, and she doesn't have to worry, when in reality, you would think that it would it makes sense if if a teenage girl was going through the situation that Julie is going through in this book, like her grades would probably suffer, and that would be understandable. Um, but I guess I just wish that we had we had sort of heard that explicitly. Like Julie was really struggling in school. I think maybe at the end, after spoiler alert, everybody, Luke dies. <laughs> after Luke dies, there's a point made about how she can't even get herself to school, and that's when her parents get concerned. But Throughout all of the other ups and downs of the story, there's not even a mention of how difficult it is for her to like balance everything else that she has going on. Everything in her life becomes about Luke and his illness. Amen. Yeah, which is not not great, especially when you're 16 years old. Um, so I understand why her mom was so concerned, and I I think. I was empathetic to to Julie's mom because I would imagine, and I don't have kids, certainly not teenagers, but I feel like Julie's mom was probably in such a hard spot because, of course, you want to encourage your child to like be in a loving relationship, and if your child's partner or significant other is going through a tough time, you obviously want to support them in like doing whatever they need to do to be helpful or to grieve if that time comes, but. You also like have to make sure that they're feeling empowered to take care of themselves and trying not to always focus on the other person. So I think that that must be a very hard position to be in in real life. I haven't been there yet, but I have seen my cousins raise their now adult children. And there's a saying with parenting that's like little people, little problems, big people, big problems. Mm. The time and the way your kids need you kind of at the stage I'm in where it's mommy, 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 mommy. And they kind of want all of me all the time. It's very different when they're an adult, when there's so many other high school, especially where there's so many other temptations and challenges and things happening that you have to be so aware of, broach really carefully, and ultimately trust that you've raised your kids with the right judgment to make decisions for themselves with also balancing the need to jump in and take care of their problems for them. And I'm going to enjoy the mommy, mommy, mommy face right now because I can't even fathom that, but it's, it's, it's 
I, I felt so much for Julie's mom, who clearly is watching her bright, beautiful daughter with so much potential, who she probably wants her to get out of that little Indiana town and do something big. I get the sense that Julie's mom was actually quite ambitious herself, but due to love and this very traditional conservative partnership and marriage she's in, didn't really get to do that and is in that town making the most of, you know, where she is, but wants something different for her daughter. I saw that as well. And working on that theory, I hadn't thought about this before, but interesting that she chose to become a college counselor, if that's her Mm. background, to really encourage kids in this small town to get out and do something maybe bigger or more ambitious or to chase different kinds of dreams than most of the people who grew up locally have in the past. I mean, who knows if Lurlene was thinking that deeply about the chosen career of of Julie's mom, but I like to think that. I'd like to think that too. And also in other Lurlene books, she writes smart, ambitious girls. She doesn't write silly, foolish people in general. Like there is always a little bit more depth to each character and a little bit of drive, even though if she does typically put them in traditional gender roles. So it's interesting that she says that because I remember another series, a girl who gets a heart transplant gets it from the brother of her, who the guy who would become her boyfriend and she's a track star and that guy was a track star and she has huge ambitions of like going to the Olympics and it's interesting to think about that. Yeah, definitely. How cool would this book have been if it was written from Julie's mom's perspective? Oh my God. I mean, I would it wouldn't have that. been the same book, but like I would have loved like a companion book from Julie's mom's perspective. That's what I want. I want that too. Literally. Also, it would make a great parenting book too. <laughs> Here's how to handle big people and big problems and one of the trickiest situations that you could find yourself in as the parent of a teenager. By Lurleen. <laughs> By Lurleen. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about how both Julie and Luke handled the news of Luke's diagnosis. So if we flash forward a bit, um, Julie is, is finally the one who pushes Luke to go to the doctor. That's a theme throughout. Um, I think there's definitely some sense in Luke that there's something more serious going on with his health. And as the book progresses, he is sort of aware of health issues cropping up again and again. And and I think he has a gut feeling that his condition isn't getting any better and he's continuing to hide from that. But especially early on in the book, like he doesn't know what it feels like to be in the thick of cancer. And so he's just dreading going to the doctor because he doesn't want to miss a football season because he comes from a lower income part of the community because his mom is a single mom. He's really counting on being a football star this year to go to college so that he and Julie can live happily ever after. So he's like, Let me just get through football and then we'll deal with it. But Julie finally pushes him to go. There was some definite like potentially, I mean, I figured they were like factual errors or at least they would be now where Luke doesn't need to have an adult present to like go to all of these appointments and like sign off on certain treatments. But Julie's there. So I guess it's fine. His mom is not with with him at a lot of the doctor's appointments that they go to where I would assume at least now you would have to have somebody 18 or older with you, I think that seems to check out. Yeah. I can't imagine an oncologist that would consent to hooking any patient up to, you know, the infusion without having an actual adult. Yeah. I feel like Luke was calling a lot of his own shots on his care. And I guess he's very close to being an adult. He's a junior in high school. And I'm sure that 
maybe in a real life situation, a parent would ask for their child's real opinions and thoughts about what kind of treatment to pursue because there are obviously a lot of different options and crossroads when it comes to a cancer treatment plan. But it did seem like in this book, his mom had sort of like totally surrendered and been like, whatever you want to do, like you can make all the decisions. Um, And that was a little frustrating for me, I think, especially at the end, because Luke does make like a pretty significant choice that impacts the length of his life. And I had to wonder like, was this really okay with his mom? But anyway, they find themselves at the doctor's office through a series of appointments. He's diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma. Um, And according to the book, it's a form of cancer that develops in the lymph system, which is part of the body's circulatory system. Right now you're in an early stage and your prognosis is good. So that's the first um, piece of news they get from a doctor. And this is Julie's reaction. Cancer. Julie felt as if someone had hit her hard in the stomach and knocked the wind out of her. Maybe she hadn't heard Dr. Sanchez correctly. But Luke's so healthy, she blurted. He plays football. (laughs) Oh, Julie. Oh, Julie. So that was the first reaction. She's very angry. She says, I'm mad because this is happening to you and you didn't do anything to deserve it. And I'm mad because people, especially my father, are acting like you shouldn't be too bothered by any of it. That's so lame. If it were me, I'd be throwing things at everybody who stuck his head in the door. So that's the reaction. What did you think about these diagnosis scenes? Oh, oh, I, it never lied. As a kid, I think I didn't know what to think of it. So I just kept reading as an adult now, knowing who I am and I'll just be honest here. I did have a cancer scare about seven years ago. I found a lump in my breast. I had to go get a mammogram immediately. I've had to go get mammograms every six months from that point on to this day because they just want to monitor it and make sure it's just, you know, a dense piece of tissue and it doesn't, it isn't anything else. I know how I felt as an adult in that position and how my parents felt and my husband felt when I was going through that position And it was nothing to what Julie felt. I mean, for me, this being the area I work in, I kind of had, okay, if it's a positive diagnosis, it'll probably be a double mastectomy, then I'll go through chemo, and then I'll have reconstruction, and it's probably going to take me, you know, nine months. What am I going to do about work? Are we going to have kids? Does that mean I have to do a round of in beat, like egg harvesting? It's bizarre how I think of it, which was very, okay, if this worst case scenario happens, what is my prognosis and what do I do? I can imagine that for people who don't have that knowledge, it it being a very terrifying and scary more than angry in that immediate setting. I think you're processing the the shock, the fear, the what are my options first before you get to anger. So for anger to be such an immediate reaction, I think you see Luke processing it that way. Anger, maybe it's also as a 16-year-old hormonal teenage girl, it's a different emotional um, journey. But reading it this time around, I was like, you're angry? If you're this smart, and I got, this was also pre-Google, you guys. So if they needed to like research things, they were like going to the library and looking it up in like an encyclopedia. Yeah. Well, and you also have to believe, I mean, I I think over time, conversations that are really difficult to have and that are heavy have have become a little bit more widespread and more Mm -hmm. accessible to teens. I wonder if in the early nineties, when Lurleen wrote this book, if your average kid would have had like little to no information about cancer, whereas now 
I mean, of course, there's Google, but I just think the kinds of content that younger people are consuming is different. And so I think maybe kids just come at it from a different context now than Julie did. Probably. I don't know. But I, I agree with you. I think she got mad really fast. And like when I was picturing this scene in my head, you know, this this poor doctor is trying to stay calm and deliver what's really heartbreaking news. I mean, I can't imagine being an oncologist, period, but especially being an oncologist who has to deliver news to like a minor and, and younger people must be very difficult. Um, and I'm sure he's very well practiced in trying to be respectful and empathetic and all of those things. And your patient is being very calm, but you have this 16 year old girl who's like screaming in the corner. It must be a very difficult moment. Like, I don't know how you handle that. And I actually don't think she would have been allowed in the room. Yeah. I think it would have been, it would have just been Luke and his mother. Yeah. It's not like a social event. So I oh. felt like it was a little bit, it was overdone. I, I did appreciate the fact that there is a theme throughout the book that like, it's okay to be angry. Mm -hmm. Um, and maybe it was a little bit overdone and perhaps Lurleen was trying to make a point by allowing Julie to be angry at so many moments throughout the story, just to be like, it's okay if you're really pissed off that somebody you love is sick. Um, and it's okay if you feel pissed off over and over again, and it's okay if you lash out at people, it's okay if maybe you feel like you need to behave inappropriately sometimes. I mean, I think there's obviously an element too of immaturity in Julie's behavior, but, um, I do like that Lurleen sort of gives people permission to feel all the feelings and, and there's mm -hmm. a time and a place in a lot of situations for that, of course, but I was happy that Julie wasn't this like perfect polished girl in some of these moments because I think throughout a lot of the book, she's just trying to kind of pretend nothing's happening, which I also would like to discuss, but it, it was sort of refreshing to see her like actually feel things in the moment and not mm -hmm. be like, okay, well, um, it's going to be fine. Like she really allowed herself to just like be who she wanted to be when it was so mm -hmm. hard. Yeah. I agree with everything you just said. I love, thank you. Nailed it. Great. So let's talk a little bit about like the new normal. I thought that was an interesting part of this book too. Obviously Luke is, is doing different kinds of treatments. First he goes through a round of chemo and of course he's like struggling to find a routine at school that works for him and he's feeling a lot of eyes on him. I can't imagine what it's mm -hmm. like to go through this kind of experience when you're a teenager. It's already hard enough to be a teen. You already feel like everybody's looking at you no matter what you do. And to be at school, not looking like yourself, feeling like you're not holding up to the standard that maybe you had set for yourself as this football star in a place where that's like the most important thing to be. It must be very difficult. And to the extent that like this book holds up a certain construct of masculinity and what that's supposed to look like, I'm sure that Luke like feels as though his has taken a hit. Um, clearly mm -hmm. in this town, like a certain stature and a certain physical strength and a certain like swagger is very important. Um, and Luke is really going through a very heavy duty treatment and he's not able to be his usual self. Something that I thought was really gross, but also kind of hilarious is there's a moment where Julie's dad is like, I know you can't bench press right now while you're in chemo, but you should at least do like some free weights. Like you can do like <laughs> some light workouts um, just to keep up with the team. And so that's part of the new normal. Luke's kind of trying to figure out like what it looks like for him to go to school now. Julie's trying to figure out what it looks like to be his girlfriend now. And she says, normal. After so many weeks of being in the grip of crisis, Julie had forgotten what normal felt like. Suddenly she felt depressed, but she also saw that she couldn't allow Luke to retreat from the world for both of their sakes. If she loved him, she'd do her best to help him resume a normal existence. And if he loved her, he'd do it. A couple of things. So first of all, I think a new normal is very 
interesting concept to explore for teens. I think it's a really hard thing to wrap your head around when you're a teenager. Change is so hard. Um, I remember several points in my own adolescence when like something changed in our life as a family and it was like, okay, like we're just going to establish a new routine and it's going to be fine. Like life is dynamic and evolving and we just have to adjust. But this is also the beginning of Julie's tendency to like kind of want to sweep things under the rug with Luke. Mm -hmm. She kind of just wants him to move forward, especially because his chemo early in the book seems to be working really well and he goes into remission. So she just is like, great, you can be positive. But in this particular paragraph, the one that I just read, she's also putting this like pressure on him that like, if you love me, you're just going to resume a new normal. Um, And I think she thinks that she's going through this experience with him. Like she thinks because she's supporting him that like she understands. And it's so clear that she doesn't get it. That's absolutely correct. And something that I took this read around was a misguided um, attempt to help and to be a part of it. And it's, it reminded me of when, when couples say we're pregnant, we're expecting, no, 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 only, only, only the woman's pregnant. Um, that's a very individual experience. So in a way that kind of took me back to my own pregnancy when my husband, thankfully always said, we're expecting, but she's doing all the hard work. And I'm like, yes, yes, I am. Thank you very much, honey. Well Well said. Yeah. And it also back to Julie's mom in this, I would never be okay with my child putting their his life on hold to just be there for, yes, someone who means a lot to them, but also they have their own future and they have their own life to worry about. And I mean, I certainly know my parents that would have never flown in a million years, but wondering if it was, is this just how non-Indians are or is this just a book? <laughs> Yeah, I don't think this would have flown in my household either. But I guess, like, I, what I guess, what would have, her, what would the alternative have been? I guess she sort of would have had to tell Julie to like break up with him. I, I guess that's why she was in a weird spot because while he's going through all of this, Julie's only real way to spend time with him is is to put her life on hold and to be at the hospital. So I don't, I don't think that makes it right. But I guess I can see how she's caught in the middle of these two extremes, like either let your daughter completely give up her life to support her high school boyfriend or sort of push her in a direction that forces her to break up with him. I also wonder how much Luke actually wanted her there. It felt because this book is predominantly told from Julie's point of view, we never got a sense of what Luke actually wanted. And there are moments where he does like distance himself from her and say kind of, Heisman her away a little bit, like push her away because he needs space. Because again, he's the one with cancer, not them collectively. And that's a lot for anybody to process. And certainly a 16 year old kid who had a plan for his life, who knew he had to execute strongly on this one thing in order to have a future that he so was at his wildest dreams to not end up in the same town, you know, working kind of the jobs that his parents did, his parents who wanted more for him. And for all of that to just be taken away by this diagnosis, I can only, I can't fathom how a 16 year old can process that to process it with your well-intentioned, but slightly naggy girlfriend breathing down your neck and never giving you the space to properly do that must have been incredibly frustrating. I don't think that the author explores Julie to this extent, but just because I feel like I've met people like this in my life, I couldn't help but but think that Julie might be a little bit 
the kind of person who sort of thrives on the drama a little bit. We have this saying, my husband and I, we say we don't trade in tragedy, um, which we like to say, like, we don't like to be the kind of people who are always trying to, like, lead with the bad thing that's happening in our life. We don't like to compete with other people by saying, oh, you have this bad thing happening? Like, the thing we have happening is worse. And I sort of think that maybe... Julie is the kind of person who does like to trade in tragedy. Like she enjoys to some extent being in the heart of this life or death, literally situation. And while of course she would rather her boyfriend not be sick, if he has to be sick, she wants to be like in the passenger seat, sort of being able to take some, like, I don't want to say credit, but she wants to be in like the spotlight of of all of the sympathy that Luke is getting um, and to like really feel the pain with him when when she can't. He's the only one undergoing treatment. He's the only one like actually facing the potential to lose his life at such a young age. So I, I sort of recognized that quality in her just because I've met people like that in real life. And I think with Julie, it's either she has to be complete. She's either completely the leader or completely the victim and nowhere, never in between. Yeah, that's and a really good point. That frustrated me about her this this read around. Yeah, and you and you get moments where it feels more romantic. I mean, it for much of the book it sort of seems like she's just like his caretaker more than anything mm-hmm. and and she doesn't need to play that role. Obviously, if they were adults and and they were married or in a different kind of partnership, the responsibility would fall on her to be his caretaker and his caregiver, but he has a mom who actually is available much of the time to help him. Um, And it just seems to me as though she's reading her role in this relationship all wrong. And it takes a lot of the romance out of it for me. And and I get the sense from a lot of what I've read about Lurleen that others of her books are a little bit more romantic and and maybe their relationships feel different. For me, I sort of had to look for those moments where their like real love for each other seems sincere because so much of the story was about her like nagging him and trying to get him to like pretend that everything was fine just to be her loyal boyfriend. And I wonder again about Luke's mom in all of this, because if I had a child going through that, like no offense to his girlfriend, but I would want to be the one fully taking care of my child, the child I brought into this world and had all those memories of. I like there in no way could I fathom as a parent now letting anybody else, but really a kid, take the lead on caring for my child in such a vulnerable, necessary situation. Yeah, I would imagine that his mom had some feelings about it, but we didn't really get get much of that information. We need the companion books from the moms. Yeah, we need the moms extension pack on this book. Yes. Yeah, so I, I want to share a couple of quotes from Luke Um, kind of as part of this conversation we're having about the pressure that Julie's putting on him to like move on and just like make everything okay. He says a few things. He says first, it's true you never pressured me to play ball, but you put plenty of pressure on me to be well. He also says, you tell me all the time now that you're over cancer and you're fine, time to get on with your life, which pause is so insensitive. It's so Mm -hmm. wildly insensitive. Um, He also says, don't you think I want to be well, Julie? Don't you think I want to be rid of this and be normal and play ball and marry you? Don't you think if being positive would make me well, I would be well? And I'm blessed in that I've never been faced with the kind of situation that Luke's in, but I can imagine that anybody who's been in that spot has gotten frustrated 
many times with people in their life who lead with this, like, have a positive attitude. Everything's going to be fine, especially if you're 16 years old. Like, that must be so painful to hear. And again, like, the lack of empathy and the lack of understanding, it's it's very upsetting. And I liked that we saw these scenes where, again, Luke isn't just her, like, loyal obliging boyfriend he has moments where he's angry as well and he's very angry because he's facing death um and that comes out in all kinds of ways completely agree he's I feel for him you know I feel for this kid who is just his life was just beginning everything was just sort of clicking into place and all of a sudden is dealing with a tragedy in that everything he knew to be true about his future is radically changed Oh, and you're also dealing with a life-threatening disease and very difficult treatment as a part of it. Yeah. The kid's got enough problems. Back off, Julie. Yeah, back off. You have this girlfriend who's like, you'll play football soon enough. Like, pass. I would rather just, like, not worry about playing football and sort of have a guarantee that I'm going to get to live, even if that means I don't get to play football for your annoying dad again. Like, let's talk (laughs) about what's really important here. Please. (sighs) Julie. Julie. So throughout the book, you know, in the backdrop of their relationship, of course, is information about Luke's treatment. And he uh, does go into remission at one point, but he is no longer in remission later in the book. Um, The cancer is back and they find that it's spread, I believe, to his lung and then to his bone marrow, which I was particularly interested in for personal reasons. My father-in-law, who's unfortunately um, no longer with us, had cancer for many years and it had at one point spread to his bone marrow. And I remember very early in my relationship with my husband, him explaining that to me. And I never heard that before. I'd never heard of cancer in your bone marrow. And I just have this very clear memory of my husband explaining that to me. Um, and so I, I got information in this book about what that actually means and, and why it's such a problem. Um, and so of course, like I was thinking in this book about like what the experience of my husband being a teenager, watching his father go through this must've been like, um, because that's not something we talk about. So again, Lurleen, like bringing real information to, to the adults in the room as well. And he's faced with the need to get a bone marrow transplant, which is a big deal and not easy to get. But he ultimately decides that he's going to get a surgery to try to remove a tumor first. And we find out after the fact, when it's too late, that he actually made that decision knowing that it could potentially be a bigger risk. Um, And I, I wanted to share a couple of lines from the conversation that Julie has with Luke's mom about this decision because I think it's really interesting and says a lot about Luke's character. Luke's mom says, even if the transplant had worked, the tumor wasn't going away. He made the decision to risk the surgery and do the transplant after. Julie says, are you saying that he knew he might not live through the operation from the start? His mom says, in his mind, the benefit outweighed the risks. With the tumor gone, the bone marrow transplant had a better chance of working. Julie says, but if he'd had the transplant first, maybe he'd still be alive. He took the risk for nothing. His mom says, he told me that life is full of risks and that if a person doesn't take them, life is very shallow. And he said to me, mom, dead is dead. Luke hated dying by degrees. He told me that he'd rather have dying over with all at once than have it happen bit by bit. Luke was wise. Luke was wise. And and people of all ages face these decisions and he's 16 and he faced this decision and he made it with such conviction. And it's so heartbreaking to watch Julie learn that that was a choice he made after he's unfortunately died in surgery. But I like the fact that Lurleen really like revealed what was going on in his head. I'm glad that we got to see that conversation between Julie and Luke's mom. I am too. And a medical thing at this point, you would never allow 
to get a bone marrow transplant unless like you were in a stable enough condition to receive it. It's a really tough, tough procedure. You're quarantined for months. You have all of your bone marrow drained out of you and new bone marrow put in. You're put on a ton of immunosuppressants. So your body is um, able to accept the new bone marrow because the natural impulse is going to be rejected outright. It's not yours. Mm -hmm. Only if you had an identical twin would you be able to receive it with no, with little complications. And if you had two giant tumors in your lungs, there's no go. There's no way any oncologist would ever allow that. Little healthcare lesson for everyone. You're the perfect person to talk about this book. So I didn't know that. But so I guess he didn't really have a choice then. Like he would have had to do probably what he did anyway. Maybe back then. And also in pediatric cancer where kids, 16-year-olds are kids now to me, I guess, (laughs) are more resilient and can bounce back faster. That might have been a choice that he and his mother or his mother would be able to make. But again, if he's not 18, his mother is making these decisions. And I get the sense they have a very respectful relationship that Luke... We don't talk about kind of his rebellious bad boy past and how football and Bud saved him. Yeah. But... It seemed to be that when we are coming to this story, all of the sort of ups and downs that Luke and his mom went through had been stabilized and they had a really solid, respect, mutually respectful relationship that she probably did allow Luke to take the lead on some decisions. Not all, but definitely some. Yeah, it really seems like she respected his opinion on this one. Uh, what did you think about just the way that the, this loss was depicted? Throughout the book, I, I wasn't sure if he was going to die. Like, that was my my question throughout the whole story. Even as a grown-up, like, I wasn't sure if I could predict it. I figured that it would probably not have a happy ending just because of what I knew about Lurleen. But I couldn't decide. What did you think about the way the ending read to you as an adult? It read kind of anticlimactic. In the way he dies, like he dies in a risky, but also best case scenario surgery for him. And, you know, there is no, the way it's, these scenes are depicted, I think today, and especially in film, there are this, there's a sort of really sweet, almost yearning, emotional, passionate goodbye as, you know, the person's being wheeled into the operating room and, than that climactic version of someone walking out with blood all over their scrubs. I think we've seen this on Grey's Anatomy maybe one too many times. In this case, you know, they were in his room and it was like a very sweet kind of quiet conversation, hopeful. And the doctor just sort of trudges out, resigned in that scene. And even Julie, it's like she's in shock. And I think to me, how she processes Luke's death was like how she should have processed or how I guess I would have preferred to read how she processed his diagnosis in a a little bit more reflective and thoughtful. And she's devastated. Like also my parents would never like let me get away with not showing up to school for months on end, but her parents do. And you know, it's a loss, but also I remember Julie's mom going you still are living, like you're still living and you have a future and look at all these colleges acceptances you received. And like Luke would not want you to sit in your bed and wallow. Well, and his mom, his mom gives her a healthy dose of perspective too, because she's, she comes to the house and she's like, you're depressed. I'm depressed too. But like, he's my only son and I'm still going to like go move to LA. Like I have other things going on. And I think she needed to hear that. Yeah. 
But of course it was only when like Luke's surprise for her starts blooming in the football field. Okay. So Luke planted flowers like tulips that say, I love you in the new football field that was bed broken ground on before all this happened. So in the spring, the flowers came up because he said, I always cover you in flowers or always give you flowers. And this was him making good on said promise from the afterlife. <laughs> and I remember reading it going as a, as a teenager going, Oh my God, so romantic. And now reading it going, how inconvenient for the people who work at the high school and are working <laughs> the construction on that football field. Yeah. It's just going to be like pulled out also. And it's going to take people a lot of time, but it's such a movie moment. I read that they did like a made for TV movie based on this book. I couldn't find the trailer for it or anything. I'll keep looking, but that would have been great. That would have been great in a Nicholas Sparks yeah. Uh, so yeah, yeah, very dramatic last scene. I thought it was kind of a sweet way to tie up, especially because as you as you mentioned, and I agree, his death was sort of anticlimactic. So I liked that there was this big scene to finish mm-hmm. the book. In general, Hitha, has coming back to this book as an adult made you love it all the more or has it disappointed you? The things I loved about this book, I still love. Okay. Which I think is the mark of a very good YA or book you read in your adolescence. Much in the way that A Wrinkle in Time has also held up, but I I love it even more now as an adult because I'm able to appreciate its brilliance in a way I didn't get to as a as a kid. Same with Narnia. I do think it's funny because as like I grow older in some of these teen shows, I'm like, oh, the parents are really good looking (laughs) and attracted like more to the older people in the show. I found myself empathizing with the mothers so much more in this book that I viscerally had reactions to how unreasonable Julie's mother was when I was reading this as a teenager. So a good book will make you think and will make it will grow with you in a way and make you grow. So... I appreciate that about Lurleen. And I don't think I'm going to go deep dive and reread everything, but this was a good one to revisit, especially with so many, you know, contemporary fiction books that are dealing with these same themes have been coming out and have been incredibly successful. Yeah. A few of the pieces I was reading were talking about how um, you can almost draw a direct line from this to A Fault in Our Stars and how John Green sort of added like a sense of humor to this situation that Lurleen doesn't, but that she really invented this genre and has mm-hmm. given other authors permission to kind of like play in this space and maybe adopt a different tone. But like she kind of led the way for very successful YA authors, including John Green. So I thought that was interesting. What else have you been reading lately and loving? You give such great book recommendations on your Instagram. And so I'm sure you have some that you'd like to share with our listeners. Thank you. I am like catching up on my NetGalley queue, which for those of you who don't know, NetGalley is an opportunity to get digital copies of advanced reader copies of books before they're published. So I've just finished Cleo McDougal Regrets Nothing, and it gave me such Where'd You Go Bernadette meets Charlotte Walsh Likes to Win vibes, but also is a great story just on its own. And I loved that book. I finished it um, a couple days ago and still kind of thinking about it and like gushed to the author over Instagram DMs because I'm a weirdo like that. And right now I'm reading the forthcoming book about Nancy Pelosi that is so good. I mean, no matter where you lie politically, the fact that a mom of five 
then decides to run for Congress and becomes one of the most powerful women in American politics in our history and does so really in a feminine leadership kind of way versus trying to exhibit male leadership. It's a really fantastic book. I've learned so much about her and particularly her early years, and I'm really enjoying that one. And I have a pile of books I'm taking home to my parents' house with me to keep me company during this quarantine. Yes, we are recording in the middle of all of the chaos. Listeners, we hope you're all safe and healthy. Um, well, both of those books sound really good, and I will include links to both of them in the show notes for this episode, as well as a link to Don't Die, My Love, and a link to your book, How to Pack Hitha, and your relatively new podcast, which I hope people will check out. It's called One Smart Thing. Lots of great stuff to learn on your show, and you have the best theme music of any podcast out there. So listeners, please check that out. It's been so fun talking with you, Hitha. I really appreciate it. And um, I'm glad that you got to take a deep dive into a book that gave you so many feelings when you were a teen, even if even if your feelings are a little bit more mixed this time around. Um, it was really interesting to talk to you about it, especially because it seems like it really impacted the path that your life took. So you were the perfect person to read this book with. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.